Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Gianna. And I'm Bianca. Gianna, it is our last episode of Art Louine, and for the finale, we have the best final girl a horror movie could ever ask for. In this episode, we are joined by Lynn Broyles, who will be discussing the inherent queerness of the horror genre and the trope of the final girl. So grab your sacrificial bestie and let's Art Pop Talk. Hello, hello. Happy almost Halloween, Gianna. Almost Halloween. Yay. Do you have Bianca, plans? Well, I'm more concerned about your Halloween plans <laughs> after what you just told me. <laughs> well, I was saying that um, I am moving to Boston three days from now, which is wild. Um, so... For Halloween, Andrew was like, oh, we should go to Salem for Halloween. And like, that sounds fun, but that sounds like a lot. Like, (laughs) I don't know. Like, it sounds really fun, but also I'm kind of scared. Like, what if, I don't know, it sounds super spooky. That's like the most spooktastic town you could possibly go to for Halloween. And as a novice Halloween participant in like the spooky spooky halloween stuff you know like if if we could just go to like some rich houses and like go trick-or-treating i'd be all about that but i feel like it's gonna be like what is there to spooky what is there to do in salem have you looked it up is it more like cute like oh like salem things like black cats hocus pocus yeah we went to salem actually almost a year ago but we went like at the very beginning of november Actually, we were in Salem. We were having breakfast when the election was decided. And all of a sudden, Andrew and I are eating our breakfast and like people start honking their horns. There was like cheering in the streets. We're like, holy shit. And then like our phones started blowing up. And um, so we were in Salem when uh, it was officially called for Joe Biden. Um, Yeah, the Dems put like a little spooky spice on the election it was was like the you know like the week after like you know halloween or whatever um maybe two weeks after halloween so we we didn't get to go to the witch museum um but there's witch museum we saw like sabrina statue um we went to like the downtown area and we just went to all the shops and of course that's kind of like an all-year thing for salem is kind of like spooky novelty shops and things like that um so we just we just bopped around the town um and then we we went over to cambridge later in the afternoon but in the morning yeah we just we just walked around so we weren't there for like height spooky season but i feel like going on halloween night i'm like whoa i don't know it sounds super scary But actually, they are playing like a few days before Halloween. They're playing Hocus Pocus in Boston Common and like on the lawn. And I'm really excited for that. That'd be fun. That sounds nice. Go do that. Yeah, I'm super excited. But I do want to do – I told Andrew I want to go dancing. I want to go to like a Halloween ball. That sounds fun because the last Halloween that that we had out was um, in OKC and – you and I went as Alexis and David and we mm. went to the the throwback bar in Oklahoma City and we do you remember that and we went we went dancing and it was so fun and there was that guy dressed up as a cowboy <laughs> Woody there was someone dressed up as Woody do you remember that we went to a throwback bar that plate the speakeasy the speakeasy 
Oh, you know what? Weren't those on different nights? Because we did haunt the zoo, and that's when like Wayne Coyne was dressed up as like a caterpillar. And then, oh, yeah, we did a lot of Halloween stuff. Yeah, we did, which like, makes we did... me really happy because that was the last party that I threw was my Halloween oh, party. God. And then we did haunt the zoo. And then you're right. Then we ended up doing that throwback speakeasy. speakeasy. Yeah. Oh my god. We went out so with a I bang, totally... and we didn't even know oh, it. Jesus. Oh my god. God, I've got to go. I need to go out. You know, and I I think what bums me out the most is, I don't know, I feel like Halloween is like our like sister thing. I know that we're just like dipping our toe into the horror world or the horror genre, but I just feel like our little like dynamic duo costumes are so cute. Like, I don't, I I don't like get the same energy when I do them like with Vivian. It like doesn't make as much sense when I... No, I know, because I, I was telling Andrew, like, as excited as I am to spend Halloween with him, like, I was like, are you, like, can we go out? Can we go out? And he was like, I don't know. And I was like, Gianna would go out with me. Like, if we were uh, together this year, what would our dynamic duo costume be? Oh, that's a really good question. Ooh. I don't know. What's something that, like, <laughs> because we didn't dress up last year, obviously, so I feel like we have two years of of content oh oh wait i feel like rain on me would be a great costume that's what i was gonna say yeah we were gonna do ariana and gaga but i feel like i could totally wear that to the concert i feel like i could wear that any day (laughs) (laughs) ariana gaga would be a really good one chromatica vibes would be a good costume i feel like Mm -hmm. like we could go if we got like a cute little like girl gang together we could go as the different tribes of chromatica oh God damn it. I would obviously be Rain On Me, Sad Girl Central Station, all aboard. I feel like I, w- I would be stupid, love. Yeah, because you're so stupid. <laughs> Thanks for that one. <laughs> so um, that would be a good costume. Any other ideas? I know this isn't good content, but I thought – I feel like I remember I had a good idea a while ago and then it escaped my brain probably because I was depressed that it wasn't going to be a thing. We had talked about – Why don't you and Theban fly up to Boston? Could you do that? It's very intriguing. But Theban and I are going to Hot Springs, Arkansas next week and uh, just to chill the fuck out, which will be super nice. But Hot Springs – Just fly here instead. Well – there's this like gangster museum that I'm very intrigued by uh, <laughs> that apparently Hot Springs has. It's so, like I'm going to go hit up this gangster museum and I'll report back. So I have plans. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, fine. It's okay. Um, former PA, Miss Audrey Kaminsky, is actually coming to visit me in Boston. Wait, when? Week. What? Yeah, next week. That yeah. girl is bopping around. Let she me tell you, and Audrey Kaminsky moving is the queen of bopping, which is why we love her so much. But Truly. So she's going to New York to Boston then? Yes, she's coming to visit me. She's going to be um, my first visitor in the city. Ugh. Happy for you guys. Yeah, so like we'll go out instead. Okay, <laughs> whatever. Fuck. <laughs> while you're at your gangster museum. Yeah, while well, I'm at my fucking gangster museum in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas. 
Well, have fun with that. It was on the list of tourist attractions, so you know I'm down for it. I think there's also some like spooky like tour of some kind of like historical site. Um, okay. I really hope it's like a really bad one though. Like I really want to go to like you know like a bad one that's like yeah. look at your reflection in the mirror, and then like <laughs> a little guy pops up. You know what I mean? Ooh. It's like ooh, ooh that sounds scary. <laughs> The man in the mirror. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> do you get the vibe I'm trying to express? Yeah, I think so. I have a, I have a mental image. Well, Bianca, as excellent as this intro was, should we introduce our special guest today? We are actually oh, super, super excited that she's here truly, today. We can guarantee you that our special guest is a million times better than this intro was. So if you're here for Lynn you know, you're going to get way better content than you just did these past <laughs> eight minutes or something. Lynn Boreals is a writer and academic whose focus includes the intersection of gender and horror in film. So we are going to take a little break. And when we come back, we will be joined by the fantastic Lynn Broyles. Welcome back. Hello, Lynn. Thank you so much for being here. Hi. Thank you guys for having me. Happy, happy October. Happy spooky season. Happy spooky season. Happy October. Love to see it. Happy Art Loween. We are truly ending Art Loween on such a good note. So <laughs> we are so excited that you're here. So Lynn, can you introduce yourself to the Art Pop Tarts for us? Yeah, my name's Lynn Broyles. Um, I got my master's in film with a focus on horror movies and gender studies, particularly feminist horror theory. Um, I met Bianca when we were studying together. We had a few classes together, and she invited me to come on and talk about some scary movies and how it inter intersects with um, gender and feminist theory. So... I love it. I just need everyone listening to know that Lynn is the reason that I've like been able to appreciate and start watching scary movies. Like I just one of my very best friends loves horror movies. On her birthday, I wouldn't even go see a horror movie with her because I was too <laughs> scared on her birthday. And ever since I met Lynn, I just feel like I have such a greater appreciation for it and I feel like I can tackle this like this upfront kind of scariness that I have with like this real deep interest for actually what's happening here. So also like what a badass thing to say. Like I study feminist horror films. Like that's just so cool. <laughs> so um can you talk a little bit about your work on horror films and how did you get started working in this area? Yeah, totally. Well first of all I'm incredibly honored and I I must correct you. I'm actually a huge scaredy cat. Um <laughs> That's so it good is. for us to know. You're, what that you're telling us is that there's hope for us. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I watch a lot of stuff through my hands. Um, yes. Uh, so lots of gory stuff is is difficult for me. But um, yeah, I, I love horror. I've always loved horror. Um, I've always found it 
very visceral. I've always had a visceral reaction to it. Um, it's the thrill of being scared, but also um, just kind of feeling it in your body in a way uh, that's also excite exciting in that way. Um, I remember very clearly one of my first horror memories is watching the movie The Lost Boys with my mom mm. and getting very freaked out, but I was also could not look away. Um, so it, it was always kind of taboo and something that I was intrigued by, but also repelled by, which is, um, I think, a big appeal of horror is the grotesque and um, a way to look at something uh, horrific and then appreciate it or find beauty within it. Um, so when I was in undergrad, I got my um, bachelor's in creative writing with a focus in poetry. So I did start writing a lot of horror poems. My uh, poetry collection at the end of undergrad was the Final Girl poetry series. Um, so I had a poem for uh, a lot of different Final Girls, like one poem for each girl. Um, and then I started going into the film realm and I did some work where I wrote a thesis about Wes Craven's Final Girls and kind of how they have evolved and how they mirrored the uh, waves of feminism from the Last House on the Left in the 70s, which was very like gritty, to the Nightmare on Elm Street in the 80s and Scream in the 90s, going like second wave and third wave feminism. Um, and then I decided that was my main interest and I went to uh, grad school, got my master's and I will say maybe not the most taken seriously subject in graduate school, um, horror films. Uh, still to this day, it's, it's uh, not considered maybe the most highbrow of art mm. and I understand why, um, but I do think there's, there's really nothing like it. You find such great catharsis and empowerment through this genre, um, maybe in unexpected ways, and uh, especially for women, I think. Mm -hmm. I think it can be a very, very powerful genre for reclaiming feminine power. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you say, I was kind of taken aback when you said that it was difficult for you to kind of gain that respect in grad school through your topic of choice, because... Although then I compare what we're doing here at Art Pop Talk when, you know, we're trying to talk about these everyday experiences and how they are relatable to art and that lowbrow genre feels so artistic to us the more that we dive into it and the more that we've been analyzing this month. Um, but it, it, as you will take us through, there is so much to dive into. So we're going to prove all those people wrong from your... <laughs> From your grad oh, class. Oh, definitely. Um, <laughs> I know I already have questions. I already have like follow-up questions about that one point you made. So I'm excited. Oh, please hit, hit me with that. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking about like, um, I wonder if if like times are a change in because of the context of like Get Out and films like that that are like gaining this kind of like Oscar buzz. So I I hope that there's like light at the end of the tunnel for for horror genres. And I know we have a question about that evolving kind of theme of characters later on. But mm -hmm. as a genre, I hope that um, some creatives are really bringing it into a new light. I think it is. I, I definitely think so. There, there's been a, a recent coining of the term of transcendental horror, 
which mm -hmm. um, is kind of the A24 elevated horror of Ari Aster with Midsummer and Hereditary, where it's very art house, it's very mm -hmm. cerebral and psychological, very beautiful and well-made. Um, so I do think it is kind of rising above the B-movie schlock um, that it has been considered for so long. But I also think that the B-movie schlock has its own charm and its own beauty and its totally. own um, value. But I think that's kind of the beauty of horror is that it contains multitudes in that way and that it can be so many different things and can uh, be interpreted in so many different ways. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned A24 because earlier this month I actually, you know, made a joke about A24 and how like, oh, it's so underground. You know, you probably never heard of it. And I, I feel like that's part of the reason why I was so taken aback by saying that by you saying your your fellow peers, your colleagues were, you know, having a hard time with you talking about the subject of of horror and feminism because that schlock and that that B movie history is something that's so important because we can truly try to recreate those aesthetics, but we're never really going to get that back and that history back, which is why it's so important. And which is why a 24 can only like attempt to kind of capture that. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's true. It's so true. So let's just go ahead and get into it. So my first yes. question for you, many real life associations with horror films are based on this societal fear, and these preconceived ideas about gender. So I think it's going to be helpful to start out our conversation about the character in horror films that historically drive the narrative. So can you please define the trope of the final girl and these, um, or I should say, and the investigative consciousness that this character possesses to help drive those narratives? So the final girl is kind of I've described her as a feminist folk hero. She is an archetype that, as as her name suggests, she's the survivor. She is the only one that survives the massacre of, of the slasher film. And it usually does lend itself pretty much exclusively to slasher films. Um, mm. You can have, you know, a female protagonist who is the main character of a horror film. You can see, like, Silence of the Lambs, um, but I wouldn't call Jodie Foster a a final girl in that film. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was defined really by Carol Clover in her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, um, which is kind of the seminal text for feminist horror film theory. Um, but the final girl is, she is kind of the atypical woman in the film. She's not overtly sexual. She's not a stereotype in the way that many of the other female characters are. Um, you could see something like uh, Halloween, the original Halloween. We have Jamie Lee Curtis, who is quiet. She's very meek and shy. She dresses very conservatively. Uh, she doesn't want to kiss boys. She uh, wants to stay in on Halloween and just babysit and get do her job and be a good girl while her friends are, you know, sleeping around, smoking pot, drinking beer. And that's kind of the typical final girl is the girl that you wouldn't expect to step up, to live, to fight back. Um, so she's really typified as the woman who is forced by trauma to come into her own and to find her own inner strength in that way. Um, I like to think of 
the final girl as symbolizing the literalization of gender-based trauma. Um, like there is a man coming to get you and you have to survive that, which I think is unfortunately an extremely common uh, mm-hmm. um, experience that women have. Just, I, we, we can look at, you know, the Me Too movement has exposed a lot of this, but I think even before that, women either we ourselves or we know someone who has had experiences being assaulted, uh, you know, surviving abuse, these terrible, terrible gender-based um, experiences that are usually at the hands of, of a masculine figure, a man. Um, so that is almost a universal experience for women, is um, encountering the threatening male figure. So that's like putting our experience on screen we kind of live a horror movie in that way sometimes um fear is constant in womanhood almost Mm -hmm. it's like a first language sometimes um and so seeing that visualized on screen i think is incredibly powerful um, because it's the woman who survived at a cost we we very rarely see in anything else um a woman fighting to survive and winning so I think it's a very powerful figure, um, especially for women who are survivors of abuse, who are, um, you know, trying to survive in a world that doesn't always make it easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, I feel like I'm getting emotional already just because <laughs> even though we have this, like, um, this idea of kind of me too being something on a very like grand scale i suppose like it's it's very heightened in our in our culture as it should be but this is also let that fear that you're talking about that almost every single woman experiences is like a very real everyday type of encounter it's not this like grandiose experience that you're watching on the news it's something that happens every single day like women are taught when you walk to your car like carry your keys in your pocket a certain way like have pepper spray on you like there's a very real fear every time I walk home at night alone and that's Mm -hmm. just built into my experience living in my gender and so I I really love that you're already opening this with like it's it's a extremely powerful thing just to hear your words like horror on film is not that heightened you know experience that only happens in movies it's it's very real and and an everyday kind of thing um well, and bianca too just kind of picking piggybacking off of that everydayness that we experience lynn i'm also curious to hear just your thoughts about scream i think that is such like an interesting example in terms of the final girl like she she lives to be tortured. The franchise continues for her to drive this plot, as you were just describing. Um, and I was actually unaware that they were making a new Scream movie, and it is going to be released here pretty soon. Uh, but, you know, we have our girl, Sydney, is it Prescott? Um, mm-hmm. And in the trailer someone's calling her and he's like you have a gun and she's like I'm Sydney you know fucking Prescott of course I have a gun so Bianca describing your language like of course we have our prepper spay of course we're carrying Mm -hmm. our keys a certain way um and she truly lives to to be traumatized and now this new generation she has to help oversee this this new killing spree (laughs) 
That is, that's so fascinating because uh, Scream is, and Sydney in particular, is probably my favorite final girl. I think she's so rich and very, very rarely do you get an opportunity to track uh, a character like that throughout mm -hmm. her development, throughout the years. Um, and it's the Scream franchise is one that, that does allow us to do that. And that line uh, stood out to me particularly. I, I almost started crying when I saw the trailer when she said, of course I have. Yeah. Like, because it's badass, but it's also terribly sad, but it's also It's true. Empowering. It's like. Yeah, it, it's true. It, it hits dangerously close in a, in a very mm -hmm. subtle way and maybe in particular that only like women or certain types of people are are aware of of those types or yeah. you know just with that little mm -hmm. line they're they can connect to mm -hmm. that in that very freaky horrible and sad way <laughs> yeah and like like Bianca said earlier I'm I'm not sure if people who aren't living their lives daily as women walking to their car um, you know, am I going to run into my scary ex-boyfriend today? All that stuff. I don't know if those, if people who don't live, live that experience realize how real it is. Mm -hmm. Some of these films, mm -hmm. just like how, how raw it can be. Yeah. So linking the introduction and the conclusion of a final girl journey, which is interesting as you were talking about with Sydney, because now we're getting this, another extension of that. Um, why is it important to understand how the final girl is presented to us, the audience, and its connection to that male gaze? And why is the final girl given that privilege to survive? So unfortunately, that's kind of the problematic nature of the final girl mm -hmm. is her virginal um, value. Uh her virginity is what gives her value in a lot of these films. She hasn't sullied herself with sex or drugs or um, alcohol. She hasn't committed the sin of, of living. Um, uh, so she's often virginal tomboyish. That's another thing. Um, uh, Clover talks a lot about uh, cross-gender identification. So it's been presumed for a long, long time that the main audience for these films would be teenage boys. Um, I don't know if that's completely true, <laughs> but um, I believe um, her point was that it would be easier for teen boys to identify with maybe more of a an androgynous girl um, rather mm. than a very feminine girl. Um, but Sydney is a great example of this. Um, they actually call it out in Scream uh, explicitly. Stu, Matthew Willard, amazing thespian um, <laughs> says you had sex now you have to die um explicitly um sydney is the mold breaker i think because not only does she lose her virginity which is you know considered the ultimate sin um but she loses it to the killer spoiler who is her boyfriend um so it's Ooh. kind of the ultimate sin it's like I'm not only going to give myself over to a man I'm going to give myself over to the man who is trying to hurt me and those I love mm -hmm. um, so when it comes to the male gaze um, I'm going to kind of give a Laura Mulvey 101 yes, <laughs> um, please. yes. Um, so Laura Mulvey um, this amazing feminist film theorist she really wrote the seminal piece on gaze theory um, she characterized the camera as like the masculine gaze. So the audience is inhabiting a male 
viewer. And every woman on screen is shown as a pleasure object. So they are shot as um, an object to bring us visual pleasure. So you can see this in a lot of films. Uh, women are shot from the feet up. They are shot from uh, the breasts down. Um, there's a lot of objectification, focusing on the body, uh, sexualization. And the men in the films are very much the point of view characters. The women are to be looked at, the men are to look, basically. Um, a lot of this has to do with Freudian psychoanalysis, which I've always been extremely suspicious of, especially. <laughs> <laughs> because, you don't say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's incredibly backwards and uh, uh, has a lot to do with a gender binary that I think we're past. Um, but I do think mm. uh, slasher movies in particular are working a lot in psychoanalysis, and you can see a lot of that evidence on screen. Um, so I do think it's useful, but we, we need to be questioning it. So <laughs> female victims are often portrayed voyeuristically. So they're seen undressing through a window. Um, we, uh, the viewer, are inhabiting the perspective of the killer, there's a lot of like mm. shaky cam and you hear kind of like, <sighs> like heavy breathing. Um, so it's like really rustling in the bushes. Yes. Yes. There's a lot of like putting you in the shoes of the killer who is usually a very scary man who is watching a girl in dress and like, uh, you know, um, <laughs> uh, and you're watching her have sex. Um, they're looked at. They're seen as sexual objects by the male gaze of a killer and the audience. So the killer and the audience are, being collapsed into one but the final girl i think is unique because she is the one that does the looking she mm -hmm. if you can see in like in halloween and scream she's the one who notices the thing that's off she notices michael myers across the street like who is that while everyone else <laughs> is very you know in their own world self-absorbed um so she notices the stranger in the dark she looks back and she seizes the gaze which I think is so powerful. It's like, actually, I'm looking at you. You're not looking at me. Um, and it reminded me of this incredible Agnes Varda quote, which is, uh, I consider kind of an antidote to like the male fantasies, male fantasies, Margaret Atwood quote. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, it's Agnes Varda says, the first feminist gesture is to say, okay, they're looking at me, but I'm looking at them. The act of deciding to look, of deciding that the world is not defined by how people see me, but how I see them. So mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the ethos of the final girl in terms of gaze theory, in that she's reclaiming the gaze as well as reclaiming her power. I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about the construction of the final girl in terms of how she looks and how she acts. And in doing some readings from Carol Clover, and kind of going back to your original demographic, saying this was earlier on, maybe our primary audience was teen boys. I'll know that we know that it has evolved since then. But there has to be this careful construction of our, if you want to call her a victim, because we also have to root for her. She has to be like likable, um, but also realistic. She can't be like frail. She has to be tough. Therefore, like her maybe like non-binary like clothing comes in handy for that. Like it's, it's so it's crazy to me and just reading about like the construction of the, uh, 
the appearance of the final girl is just so heavily scrutinized so we can like her (laughs) Mm -hmm. definitely she has to kind of be the most neutral character but also the most extraordinary character Mm -hmm. Um, she has to be better than everyone but also more capable than everyone of like yeah yeah great point (laughs) and on the and on the kind of flip side too it's interesting to hear you talk about this this neutrality of the final girl and then how there always seems to be this friend group like this group of girls and this group of guys and the girls you were talking about you know like they're sexual beings they're proud of their sexuality they're drinking they're smoking but on the other hand we also have this like heightened sense of masculinity not just in the the killer itself but we kind of have this like athletic mean boy or this you know this like this like very toxic masculinity that's not coming from the killer so that's interesting to kind of the way you put the final girl in the middle on like this kind of polar scale is really interesting to see in just like the viewpoint of those I don't know opposites I guess yeah it's almost like caricatures of gender like Mm -hmm. here are the different um, extremes of gender that we can think of here's what like the most masculine man or the most feminine man if we Mm -hmm. have like you know a nerd or I guess a a gay stereotype which you do see in some of these films but it is kind of the most um, obvious gender stereotypes that you see Mm -hmm. and then you have her who is more complicated and more Mm -hmm. nuanced. And that's kind of her superpower is that she transcends that and she gets to be a full person. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that I am experiencing. And I was actually talking to Bianca about this the other day. I've been watching you on Netflix. It's a show I've been following since the beginning, but I've kind of been annoyed lately at these like heightened or obvious like gender portrayals. You know, you have the stereotypical yoga moms, but um, the way in which those characters are are written, their their dialogue is just so heavily exaggerated with like the hashtag blessed language that's you know like thrown in there that is just so heightened that I, I I just am kind of over it because it feels like that kind of dialogue is also becoming extremely saturated in maybe someone who is our final girl but those attributes like that that kind of special power that she has also leads to her undoing as well so that was kind of like one of the twists that this series puts on those like heightened dynamics um but I gotta watch season three. That's I'm interesting. Sorry, yes, I've been I've been scared to watch. To be honest, oh really? I, it's it looks a little a little triggering. <laughs> yeah, I I wasn't as big of a fan of season three as I was like the first season. I think that was my favorite, but it it's because these characters in this environment that um joe kind of finds himself in he's surrounded by these like same exaggerated like stereotypical people you have like the masculine guy you have like you know the token gay friend and you know all these different like people like really privileged the spoiled rich girl but yeah um but it's kind of fun to watch them be killed that's kind of the (laughs) half the fun of slasher movies too (laughs) That's really funny. I hadn't really thought of that. But I'm always like, oh, you're annoying. Okay, you won't last very long. That's okay. Well, it's really interesting, though, though, I I guess maybe I like the third season more than I thought. But surprisingly, 
those really annoying people that typically Joe kills, um, some of them survive in this last season, um, which, Ooh, which is a little bit mix little up. Mix up. Mm. You know, Joe's, I'll have to check this. Joe's out. keeping it interesting for us. But um, <laughs> so let's keep going. Let's talk about the development of the final girl. How does the final girl trope change over time? I guess from like its original context to con- a contemporary context, and how does that? Um, lead to the development of specific horror genres. You just mentioned slasher movies. And I guess with more female and non-binary filmmakers directing horror films, we will also hopefully see a final girl who, you know, ticks all these right boxes and actually survives this monster. And more importantly, she survives the deadly sequel, which if she's allowed to survive, it's only to come back to be killed. But that's also, as you described, why like Scream is such a a special genre for us. So I do hope that, and I guess you can let us know if if we're ever going to see that queer example of a final girl or if she already does exist. Oh, I have some good ones to let you guys in on. I have found some great queer final girls recently. Um, So I would say uh, it did start, the final girl did begin, I think, with Laurie Strode in Halloween. She's kind of the typified Mm -hmm. uh, signature final girl. Although before that, we did have... um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre has an amazing final girl um, that often gets overlooked. And we also had like Black Christmas, which is kind of an early proto slasher set in a sorority house. So there is a lot of, of female characters. Um, but I would say uh, there's been a trend towards adopting masculine violence um, and kind of more of an emphasis on fighting back and revenge that I find very interesting. To go back to Scream, um, the urtext that we're using here today, um, I would. there is a moment at the very end where Sydney, in order to win, puts on the mask, puts on the outfit, uses the voice changer, and kind of adopts that masculinity and adopts that persona of masculine violence to triumph over uh, the people menacing her, which I think is very interesting. Mm -hmm. She kind of assumes that identity of the person who is trying to hurt her so, so terribly. And I think that's something I've, I've been seeing recurring is the willingness to kind of go all the way and hit back and to use that masculine violence against them. And then we run into these kind of ideas of, okay, is the final girl just as bad? That, that kind of stuff. Are we using violence against men in this way that is justified? And so that gets into some really interesting narrative questions of these films. Um, I would say modern horror is also exploring trauma very, very well. Um, there's uh, the, the newest Halloween film, well, Halloween Kills is the newest one. It came out like last week. But I would say uh, the 2018 one with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis um, was maybe accidentally an extremely profound movie about PTSD and being a woman who survived trauma Um, because it's examining what is it like for this woman to have lived her entire life with this overwhelming fear that this is going to happen again. Um, And we also see in, I believe, Scream 3, which is 
not a very good movie, <laughs> but it has a really, really interesting, almost like very beautiful moment where Sydney is working for a like women's help hotline. Like that's what she does in that movie is like she answers phone calls from women who are being abused or who are in bad situations. And so it's so it it's very interesting to me those films that do connect it so explicitly to real life women's trauma and like saying that this is this is something that happens. This isn't just in the movies. Women experience this and this is we're not just kind of let's go on to the next sequel and pretend that nothing happened. So I do think exploring trauma is really interesting and I would love to see more of that um, in, in, uh, in more final girl representation. Uh, coming to the queer and sexually open final girls, we have some amazing ones. Uh, the Fear Street trilogy that came out this summer on Netflix. Mm. We have a lesbian final girl and the entire... Um, plot of all three movies revolves around a lesbian relationship and it's done with you know grace and respect I would say that one is a great great starting point for queer final girls um, the most recent remake of the slumber party massacre movie that came on sci-fi channel um that one also has a queer final girl and that's interesting because it's taking the subtext from the original film which was written by a lesbian if you look at it and you read it that way you can definitely tell that most of the women that in that film that came out in the early 80s are coded as lesbians um, but this new remake is making that text which is very interesting. Um, so we do definitely have uh, lesbian final girls. Um, we also, the question about uh, gay male or non-binary representation in terms of final girls or final boys or final envies, I guess, <laughs> that's something that I do think is lacking. Um, I think the final girl is a very specifically feminine character it is about women's trauma it is about gendered trauma but i also think that horror is inherently queer um it's about the return and the revenge of the repressed it is about transgression and queerness go hand in hand um we have uh, camp sensibility like you guys have discussed with with um your past few episodes um vampires are a very very queer figure um um, I think transgression, horror, and queerness, uh, they all go hand in hand. So I do think there could be uh, places to expand in terms of representation in horror, definitely. But I do think we are seeing much, much more. Your idea about horror in general being like inherently queer is also just a really interesting concept in thinking about the other. And I think that anyone who feels othered can equate themselves in a in a horror in the horror genre and I think even though it, it may feel like a stereotypical example but I think it's going to become canon in the genre I, I mentioned at the beginning but get out that might be an example of kind of a final boy um and maybe we're not necessarily talking about queerness but talking about blackness and talking about this figure that is clearly othered and was sought out because he is othered um 
So I'm not sure how that would fit into how that might fit into this idea about queerness, but othering I think is certainly present. Um, and maybe they, maybe they just go hand in hand. That's um, so true. Yeah. I think it, it is all about the fear of the other. Um, mm-hmm. It's about social fears. That's why I think horror can be used to explore women's issues can be used to such fascinating uh, extent to us to explore social issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, when I was in undergrad, I took a, a horror class and they talked about the return of the repressed and that kind of being the nexus of horror is that this monster is something that we've tried to ignore. It's something that we've tried to sweep under the rug and it's coming back and it will not be ignored until we defeat it. And that mm-hmm. could be queerness, it could be racism, it could be violence. Um, so I do think it is the other is the ultimate enemy in horror, but it also is showcasing the other in a way that other genres do not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe, um, I don't know if you watched um, Lovecraft Country, mm-hmm. but that's here. I feel like all of the examples you just gave are kind of like all of them are featured within that series overall. Like we have monstrosity, we have racism, we have gender dynamics. Like every single episode seems to take like a different um, – a different genre of horror and kind of mishmashes it into into um, different ways. So part of the reason that horror is discussed amongst feminists is that these grotesque stories um, or stories that examine repressed fears about gender can be traced back to folklore and fairy tales. Um, and you had mentioned to us that these legends are something that piqued your current interest. So can you elaborate on some of those stories? Oh, yes. Yes, totally. Um, So I became fascinated with this uh, British author named Angela Carter. Um, She wrote primarily in the like 1970s through the 90s, and then she passed away. Um, But she wrote a lot of feminist reimaginings of fairy tales, which I find fascinating. Um, But she is most famous, perhaps, for her story, um, The Bloody Chamber which is a retelling of the French folktale um, Bluebeard. Are you guys familiar with that? Okay, so I was reminded, because I was listening a few weeks ago and you guys were talking about bridal horror, which is fascinating. <laughs> and I loved hearing about all those different traditions and like uh, bobbing for apples coming from being scared you're not going to get a man. <laughs> I'm just like trying not to be like, oh my gosh, like Lynn listened to our podcast. Like what? <laughs> It was great. It was so fascinating. Um, So Bluebeard is about a girl who is kind of married off to an older, distinguished, mysterious gentleman. She goes to his beautiful castle by the sea, and he gives her a ring of keys, and he says, okay, here are all the keys to all the rooms in the castle, but do not use this key. This is the one key you cannot use. This goes to the basement or the, you know, dungeon, whatever. Um, whatever they said in the 1400s (laughs) but um and of course she does and she's like okay well I'm gonna go down to the dungeon she opens it up and all of his previous wives are hanging around the uh, walls all of their corpses and so she escaped well she escapes in Angela Carter's version but um so that's kind of a cautionary tale about you don't know 
the man you're marrying. Um, you're kind of marrying a stranger. You're a young, impressionable woman with um, no means and no power to kind of get out of that situation. So I think that that's a really, really powerful um, retelling. I also love, 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 love her um, her short story, The Company of Wolves, which is a Little Red Riding Hood retelling. And there is a beautiful, surreal, and very like magical realism uh, film adaptation by Neil Jordan, who went on to do uh, the other psychoanalytical monster movie, Interview with the Vampire. Um, but The Company of Wolves is about um, a young girl who becomes basically Little Red Riding Hood. And it's all these different tales about werewolves. And instead of kind of the traditional werewolf being a masculine entity, it's like male sexuality. It is kind of puberty and coming into your masculine sexuality in that way, violent sexuality. Um, instead, it is about female sexuality and getting your period and coming into your body as a woman and um, learning to make decisions for yourself and deciding to stray from the path instead of going to grandma's house. And it's, uh, I cannot recommend that movie enough. It is a beautiful film. Um, but that is such a fascinating take on the Little Red Riding Hood story, which as we all know it, um, is a cautionary tale. It's saying, you know, don't trust strangers, uh, don't go off the path, obey your elders. Um, and this is saying, you know, actually, maybe that's not true. Maybe you have the power within you. Um, and there is a, a more recent film called Ginger Snaps, which is another take on the, on the werewolf legend, which is explicitly about um, getting your period. <laughs> So you become a werewolf when you get your period. So there are some really fascinating like takes on these, some would say, uh, misogynist cautionary tales for women to kind of keep in your place, um, which they echo the rules for surviving a horror movie, like in Scream, where he's like, hey, don't drink, don't have sex, don't do this. Don't, um, and if you don't do that, you'll be a good girl and, you know, um, you'll be safe, but that's not guaranteed, right? So um, there are some really, really fascinating ways that these fairy tales can be re-examined um, from a feminist lens. You know, there's a she-wolf in your closet and we're ah. here for it. Um, <laughs> I love that song. I've been bopping I don't it. know why I feel like that, that song has resurfaced as of late. And I, I think it's so funny when she goes, oh, like it's the laziest. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm like, go girl, give us nothing. Come on, Shakira. I know. I'm like, that girl can howl. <laughs> like, let's be real. Like, what was that? Um, you know, when Bianca and I have talked so much about folklore in terms of the visual, and we use like quintessential examples of folklore in the feminist sense, and Red Riding Hood, I feel like is one of those examples. And so often we see Kiki Smith. Kiki Smith, our girl, angsty feminist moment. We love it. <laughs> we see that that wolf and that young girl combo together to where they are red as one. So it's really interesting to just 
hear those same kind of analyses, but like taking form in just different spaces and in different forms of visual media, but also in in the written language as well. I think it's so fascinating to hear you talk about uh, just poems in your own written word. I didn't start getting interested in poetry till college where I forced myself to take a creative writing class and just am so forever grateful about it because I always... I don't want to say it was dense about poetry, but it's just nothing that I I really enjoyed. And then I started writing like super like angsty, like feminist, like probably like super cringy poetry or poems. But it it really kind of helped me explore my own analysis of my own visual works in in a different way. Um, I'm kind of very interested to read some of your poems, Lynn. Oh, my goodness. Well, I would be honored. Uh, That would be amazing. I, I I definitely agree. I I love writing poems that are interpreting visual images. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Um, I love kind of trying to distill a movie into a poem, or kind of the feeling a movie gives me into a poem. Um, I I just I love trying to translate one work of art into another and keep the same feeling. Mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> but I'm so glad you you enjoyed it, and I do think I think poetry is very um, intimidating, <laughs> and a lot of people um, think it's very uh, hoity-toity and that they can't do it because it's uh, way too intense. I guess. Well, and it, but, it's intimidating too when some of these old poems that we're supposed to know about that are important, which is great. Um, And from our female poets, those are really important works of written art that we need to know about, but maybe we're not super connecting with a content. And then the only contemporary feminist poems that we have are people like Rupi Carr, that I'm not the biggest fan of her her writing. Um, And it only explores maybe feminist ideals in a super kind of surface level way. And I'm trying to write about like super dark and creepy shit. And the only like person that I've been taught about is Edgar Allan Poe. And this guy lived like thousands of millions of years ago. (laughs) It feels like, like I don't have jack shit in common with Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) Wait, you, you haven't married your like 14 year old cousin. I have not. And the only crow I came in contact (laughs) with was in freaking New Mexico and it was ginormous and I never went back. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) No, I totally get that. I think, I think people are very uh, hesitant to try something when in reality, like all you have to do is, is please yourself. It all just comes from the heart, like just free writing it. I don't know. I find a lot of uh, fulfillment out of creating art just for myself and never showing it to anyone. Yes. <laughs> but, um... but I think so often that written word is so important. And I was just joking the other day how I use ready-made as a term in my artist statement. But if people are clever enough, or maybe it's just a joke that I throw on because I think I'm funny, it kind of is like a slight to surrealism. <laughs> and how, it, you know, in a way I, I'm using this term because it's historically correct, but um, taking back ready-made from like an angsty feminist perspective and, and there's something clever and there, there's something witty about it. And I think that's what those 
written works of art do that that you're describing about this genre of film. Um, so Lynn, we went through a lot of stuff today and we are literally just so grateful and honored that you're here with us. But is there anything else that you want to share with us about the horror genre? We did talk about the final girl a lot today, um, but is there anything that we haven't asked you that you feel the art pop tarts should know about? Um, I think just to kind of, to kind of sum it up, I think horror is full of contradictions. I think it can be, misogynistic it can be hard to watch it can be uncomfortable there's some horror that i hate i cannot do torture porn i cannot do some of the like eli roth stuff some rob zombie stuff it's just not for me um there's misogyny violence rape and female suffering all over the place however i also think it's the only place that women are allowed to scream in our culture today where else are we seeing that they can fight back and they can win. And I think that's a very important thing to see. It's important to see women suffer and win and survive because it's saying, you can hurt me, you can like give me your best shot, but you're not gonna kill me. Like I'm I'm stronger than you. And I think that's um that's invaluable for some women to see. And I think it's been very, very important for me personally. And uh, it kind of makes me sad when people dismiss horror as, you know, just sexist trash. Because it can be, but it can also be a magical, wonderful thing. That was so powerful. The only place where women are allowed to scream, that's, that's really powerful. But I also think that it's hypocritical of anyone to dismiss horror genres in particular when art and culture and all of film disregards women you know it's it's not just something just because women aren't you know torn to bits and you know a Nicole Kidman drama doesn't mean that (laughs) you know women aren't being abused behind the scenes you know like I think there's something about horror that exposes much of what happens in in creative artful systems um so that that was super super powerful um we haven't asked this question in a while but you know we're gonna put a a little spooky twist on it today lynn what would you put in your flux kit as a final girl okay so this was exciting (laughs) um so i picked a few small objects from different horror movies that i thought might represent different final girls Um, So I picked Sydney's voice changer that she uses at the end of Scream. Um, So it's being used by Billy and Stu. I'm just spoiling these movies all over the place for people who haven't seen (laughs) them. I've never seen Scream. Oh, no. It's used by no one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's used by the killers to kind of disguise their voice. And at the end, she uses it to trick them, which I think is very interesting. Um, Mm. And at the end... um, there's a line where they say, oh, be careful. This is the, the moment when the killer who you think is dead actually jumps up and tries to get you for one last scare. And she shoots the guy in the head and says, not in my movie. Ooh. She's oh. like, not, this is my movie. And I think that's the archetypal final girl. She's like, this is actually my movie. Um, in Halloween, there is a 
wire hanger that Lori uses to fight against Michael Myers in the closet that she kind of blinds him. And I think the image of a woman blinding a man with a wire hanger in 1978 is very loaded. (laughs) It's like, actually, you're not going to look at me and I'm going to use this very, very symbolic uh, object. So I thought (laughs) that just occurred to me today. And I was like, wow, that's that's a good one. Um, From Nightmare on Elm Street, we have Nancy. She has a little survival guide that she uses to make like a Home Alone style traps (laughs) for for Freddy Krueger with like, all right, this uh, light bulb is filled with um, gunpowder now and it will explode when he turns on light or whatever. (laughs) Um, But when Johnny Depp asks her, why are you reading this? She goes, what can I say? I'm into survival. And it's like, we I can like make just... a little like sticker, like patch, and we can like put it on your flux Oof. kit with that quote. That would be yes, super God. cute. That's a good one. Not in my movie, and I'm into survival, are like uh, my life. And finally, I'm going to say a picture of Sally in the back of the pickup truck from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's the last, one of the last images of the film. And she's gotten away. Leatherface is like making scary pig noises and like, throwing his <laughs> chainsaw around and she's laughing hysterically because she's like I got you I beat you I'm I'm safe now I got away and it's just this she's completely unhinged she's completely traumatized but it's very like the end of midsummer she's like mm-hmm. but I'm here I've survived and you can't get me anymore that is maybe the best answer we've had to the flux Ooh, kit question. Oh my god, that I was kind of worried about that one. <laughs> so. That's really, really fucking good. I would buy that flux kit. Oh I would, god. I would sell that flux kit to women. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. This is what you need. Like, it's the hanger for me, especially the form of like, you know, when they give women like, even I have it. Like, I have like, you know pepper spray or weapons you know it's like they market it to women like you can carry it on your keys you can put it in your purse we need like a transportable like final girl flex kit that we can (laughs) like a like a survival kit for women i keep seeing that little like portable like i don't know like stick you can hit people with Oh, like a baton? Yeah, and it's like, it looks like a little, like, keychain. It's like a little silver thing, and then you click it like a pen, and it's like, whoopad, like, like ends come out of it. It's like a little stick, metal stick you can hit people with. (laughs) It's so sad that we need that, but I do kind of love the little, the the market of tiny weapons. I know. Now it's hard because now (laughs) I'm just like, that's the vibe. Like now I'm like, oh wait, is that cute now? Like, do I need this like silver stick to whack people with? Little ones that look like um, cats with like cat ears and you can just stab people with them. Yes, exactly. Wait, there's there's an SNL skit that actually is like fucking hilarious and it's like... um, these women put like spikes on like the small of their back. Have you seen yes. like men always like when you're in a bar, like men will always like touch your back, like and scoot by. And it's like, like it's like poking devices, like I'm on their that. back. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Cause Pete Davidson is like in the club and he's like, ah, my hand. <laughs> yeah. 
that was it's they like just the- filmed him in a club like that wasn't he yeah. wasn't even aware they were in a sketch it's sad but true <laughs> Uh, Lynn, before we let you go, is there anything else you'd like to plug? Um, have you been working on anything recently? What is coming up for you? Yeah, totally. Um, I actually, I, on a whim, submitted a short story that I wrote to a journal. And so it is being published in Pile Press. It's called Conte Partiro. Fantastic title. Lynn, I was cackling. <laughs> like, that is everything. It's actually kind of my own retelling of the Bluebeard story. Oh, so I love um, it. I also I do very rarely um, kind of uh, video art pieces that I put on my YouTube. Um, the one that I'm proudest of is called Nosferatu Blues. Um, it will come up if you search that on YouTube. And I would like to recommend Kim Petrus's Turn Off the Light Halloween album <laughs> because I've been bopping to it and it's good. <laughs> For Halloween season. Um, do you listen to Queen Herbie, Lynn? No. Oh my god, she just put out like a mini, it's like seven songs, but she put out a Halloween album oh and like, ooh, that I feel like Queen Herbie and Kim Petra's Halloween together. That sounds that sounds like perfection. It's going on the Ghoul's Night Spotify playlist. The Ghoul's Night. Ooh. <laughs> Gee, yeah, no. But yeah, that's uh that's that's all for me. Thank you guys so much. Oh, oh my gosh, you. thank you so much. This I love ending oh, so like good. we are ending Art Lewin with the like ultimate final girl, but like <laughs> she's like we're final girl, but like you're not in danger. <laughs> it's just yes. for Art Lewin. Thank you for letting me talk about this. I mean, the- all my friends are so tired of hearing about it. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to have you back. I just feel like, you know, representative, APT, horror expert. Anytime, anytime. I I would love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much. And Art Pop-Tarts, don't forget that you can follow us on all the platforms. We will have to link Lynn's YouTube videos for us, uh, for you on our YouTube channel. We'll put it in a little playlist for you guys. we're at Art Pop Talk. Don't forget, you can email us at artpoptalk at gmail.com. We have a Buy Me a Coffee account. If you like the content that you heard today, you can donate and uh, we'll keep we'll keep making it for you. So with that, we will talk to you on Tuesday. Bye. Bye. Everyone. Bye. Art Pop Talk's executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci-Fink. And me, Gianna Martucci-Fink. Music and sounds are by Josh Turner and photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond.